0: In 19th century England, miniature theatrical productions were all the rage. And they weren't just for kids. Children and adults alike collected intricately printed paper cutouts of their favorite theater actors, along with the theaters in which they performed, and acted out famous plays. Beyond just entertainment, these toy theater kits served as the PR campaigns of the day. This is the Craftsmanship Quarterly Podcast a show about the artisans, makers, and innovators who are creating a world built to last. I'm producer Chris Igusa. Today, we'll hear a piece titled The Rise and Fall of Toy Theatre, originally published in 2016, written by Garrett Epps. One day in late winter, 1884,
1: the author Robert Louis Stevenson entered a grimy print shop near London's Finsbury Square. The shop's owner, W.G. Webb, had stayed up late the past few nights making notes for his famous friend, a long-time customer, about the curious world of the English Toy Theater, a popular art form, now all but vanished, that replicated the dramas of the day in miniature. Stevenson was at work on an essay about that world for The Magazine of Art. Webb was a prolific toy theater producer at the time, and his name was almost synonymous with what was called juvenile drama. Years later, Webb's grandson recalled the scene that followed. "'Here, Mr. Stevenson,' Webb asked. "'Where do I come in in this?' "'You don't come in at all,' Stevenson replied. "'I come in.'" "Oh, "'This won't do,' old Mr. Webb answered." I've helped you in this history. Without my help, it it would not be written. I have given you the information, and besides, you are using my pictures for the illustrations. There was a fearful row in the shop, the younger Webb wrote, and before the shouting was over, the elder man had torn his notes to bits under Stevenson's nose. On his way out the door, the nettled author shook a finger, This is going to cost you something, Mr. Webb, he said. This is going to cost you a great deal. Later that spring, Stevenson published his essay on toy theater, A Penny Plain and Two Pence Colored, making no mention of Webb, but instead praising his chief rival, Benjamin Pollock. In his essay... Stevenson included the address of Pollock's shop in nearby Hoxton, and concluded, If you love art, folly, or the bright eyes of children, speed to Pollock's. Webb's print shop is long gone, but more than a century after Stevenson's essay, the name of Pollock lives. Pollock's today, in fact, is split like gall into three parts connected only by the name and the history— Pollock's Toy Museum on Scala Street in London's Bloomsbury welcomes 10 to 12,000 visitors a year to an exhibit of rare old toys and a shop that sells toy theatres and plays. A mile to the south, in the bustling Covent Garden Market, Benjamin Pollock's Toy Shop does a brisk business in nostalgic toys and reissued toy theatre paraphernalia. Finally, there is Pollock's Toy Museum Trust, which has no physical location, but labors to keep the lore and tradition of toy theater alive. To contemporary eyes, the English toy theater might seem to offer only a kind of surreal nostalgia. The tiny actors, arms spread in comically theatrical attitudes on elaborate sets, seem to squint at us from a timeless dream world like The Caterpillar in Alice in Wonderland but those little figures once felt very much alive. They are drawings of real actors familiar to every theatre-goer in Victorian England. What's left of them offers small glimpses of history, ones not available anywhere else, of the stagecraft and personalities of the 19th century British stage. The toy theatre is much more than just a toy, the famed British actor Peter Baldwin wrote in 1992. The spirit of early 19th-century theatre can only be recaptured by the scene and character sheets of the English juvenile drama. A toy theatre was, as we will see, a tiny but complex structure, as intricate and lovingly assembled in its way as model railroads can be for today's hobbyists. In its prime, it was not a nostalgic hobby, but a breathless bulletin from the newly emerging world of mass communications and global celebrities, a chance for ordinary people to touch their heroes in person. As the Industrial Revolution gathered speed in the early 19th century, masses of former country folk emigrated from the countryside into English cities. They often sought escape, even if only temporary, from the harsh conditions of factory labor and tenement life. The popularity of gin was one result, but the theater offered a healthier respite. Plays became mass spectacles akin to contemporary Broadway shows like The Lion King or Spider-Man. The demand for cheap seats was rapacious. When the Covent Garden in 1809 raised ticket prices, playgoers rioted inside the theater night after night for three months until the disorder compelled the owners to apologize and reduce them. Meanwhile, theaters grew. By mid-century, for example, Drury Lane seated 3,000. The Sadler's Wells featured a tank in front of the stage where the producers staged mock naval battles. Theatrical publishers—shops with names like West, Jameson, and Hodgson—dispatched multiple artists to the opening of each new production. One artist would hastily sketch the actors, mimicking their theatrical poses Another would draw the scenery, producing backdrops and wings. A writer hastily annotated the script to show where and how action occurred. The team turned over their drawings to the printer, who prepared sheets depicting the actors and scenery and a tiny booklet of script. The rendering of the scenery and actors is antique but far from crude. Among the art workers who grubbed out a living in the trade— Were the youthful poet and artist William Blake and George Cruikshank, later a famed characterist and illustrator of Dickens? Once drawn, the sheets were printed through a combination of etching, engraving, and lithograph. These were sold by the sheet, as Stevenson noted, either in black and white, to be hand painted by the buyer, or, for double the price, already colored. Children bought them to use as toys but adults also treasured them as souvenirs of their favorite actors and beloved performances. A toy theater was quite small. The stages were about six and a half inches wide, roughly the width of a 1950s-era black-and-white TV screen. The tiny actors were sold on individual paper sheets somewhere around nine and a half by seven and a half inches, each sheet containing as many as four actors who might be different characters or simply the same actor in a different theatrical pose, defiance, devotion, or despair, as different moments in the script demanded. Each actor was cut out, pasted onto a card, and fastened to special wire slides that would allow the performer to slide them on and off stage through grooves in the wooden base. Convention called for the performer to wiggle the actor back and forth as he, or a friend, uttered the lines, varying his or her voice as different characters required. Tiny oil lamps provided authentic theatrical lighting. A typical theater, such as Pollock's Regency, which is sold now in a large booklet along with scenes, a script, and actors for Sleeping Beauty, included a colorful proscenium complete with a painted orchestra beneath the stage— a paper curtain, a stage floor, wings, and a back wall. An individual play will offer one or two scene backdrops to be slipped in against the back wall. Over the years, the scripts became somewhat abbreviated versions of the actual play. In Blackbeard the Pirate, for example, the dialogue occupies about three pages— Prince Abdallah and the British Navy rescue the fair princess Ismini from the vile lusts of the pirate chief. ha <laughs> ha! Foolish woman, the pirate boasts. You are the princess of a puny kingdom, but I, I am the uncrowned emperor of the Seven Seas, replies the haughty beauty. I care nothing for your threats and do not boast too soon, proud pirate. The manly British Tars, dressed in flat hats and striped jerseys, put Blackbeard to flight, singing, Huzzah for the red, white, and blue! Some plays are more elaborate. One, called Jack Shepherd, contains 64 pages of script. Another favorite was The Miller and His Men, based on an 1813 production at the Covent Garden. The young Winston Churchill treasured this classic because it ended with the explosion of a tiny wad of gunpowder, which sometimes set fire to the entire theater, though usually with no loss of full-sized human life. Presenting the plays to an actual audience, however, was not really the aim for many of Webb's and Pollock's customers. Yes, there was pleasure in the painting, Stevenson wrote in his essay on Toy Theater. But when all was painted, it is needless to deny it, all was spoiled. You might indeed set up a scene or two to look at, but to cut the figures out was simply sacrilege. Nor could any child twice court the tedium, the worry, and the long-drawn disenchantment of an actual performance. Instead... The charm of toy theater for many was simply the chance to be connected to a real play and a real cast and to the glamorous Rococo world that was the Victorian stage. Like that theater itself, toy theater's great days were winding down by 1870. By 1884, only Webb and Pollock, friendly rivals, remained in the business, and Stevenson's essay warned of the art form's imminent disappearance. Benjamin Pollock, however, kept his shop afloat until his death at 80 in 1936. A few years later, the family sold their shop and stock to an Irish bookseller named Alan Keane. Among his other schemes, Keane convinced film producer J. Arthur Rank to commission a toy theater of Laurence Olivier's 1948 famous film of Hamlet, complete with five changes of scene and two plates of characters printed in color. The film of Olivier's Hamlet is a classic, but the toy Olivier Theatre was a flop. Hamstrung by debt, Keane ceased operations after the war. Then, in the mid-1950s, a flamboyant BBC journalist named Marguerite Fowdry contacted Pollock's receiver. Her son played with toy theatres, and she wanted to buy a few of the special wire slides needed to bring the tiny characters alive. According to her 1995 obituary in The Independent, the accountant responded, I believe there are hundreds of thousands in the warehouse, madam, but there's no one who could look them out for you. Of course, you could, I suppose, buy the whole lot if you wanted them. So she did, and created the first incarnation of the toy museum. Fowdry was, by all accounts, a magnetic personality. She attracted children still fascinated by the tiny actors and scenes and recruited them as helpers. Among these protégés was Louise Hurd, who now manages the toy shop in Covent Garden. The store sells copies of original Victorian theaters and plays and also produces and sells entire new theater sets, including a moody 2014 evocation of Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen by noted illustrator Kate Bailey. Fadri's grandson, Eddie, a photographer, still owns and operates the Toy Museum, which maintains a stock of dozens of toy theaters, including some not available elsewhere that can be printed only on demand. Not long before her death in 1945, Fadri also established the Pollux Toy Museum Trust, which keeps alive the lore of the toy theater through web sales, library and museum expositions, and publications. Alan Powers, chair of the Trust, was another child protégé of Faudry's. A distinguished architectural historian, he is an impresario as well. On a recent August Sunday, he gathered 50 enthusiasts for a production of The Waterman, a romantic drama depicting an annual boat race on the Thames. Powers deployed his own personal theater for the production, complete with electric footlights and gave voice to the cutout of Tom Tug, the dashing boatman. The performance took place at the Art Workers' Guild in Bloomsbury, which traces its origins to 1884. One past master was the noted artisan and radical thinker, William Morris. The 50 adults were rapt as the cast stamped their feet to simulate the sound of movement. All stood when the performance ended with a chorus of Rule Britannia. The lone small boy present drifted away from the performance, however. He found more excitement in leading his faithful dog back and forth across the front of the hall with the false promise of a lick at the ice cream in his hand.
0: The Rise and Fall of Toy Theater was written by Garrett Epps. It was read by Garen Norquist and produced by me, Chris Igusa. Craftsmanship Quarterly's managing editor is Lori Weed. Todd Oppenheimer is the founding editor and executive director. This story was originally published in the winter 2016 issue of the online magazine Craftsmanship Quarterly. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the podcast so you don't miss any upcoming releases, including stories, interviews, and audio projects featuring some of the world's most skilled artisans and innovators. The best way to support what we're doing is to share our work with others, and rate our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever platform you use. More stories, videos, audio recordings, and resources on craftsmanship can be found at craftsmanship.net. Thanks for listening.